Well, it's that time of year again, and Happy New Year to you, by the way. It's that time of year when we resolve to change our lives, to do something different, to improve ourselves, or, you know, to act differently, eat differently, exercise more, uh, work harder. Maybe it's to take more time away from work, uh, to express ourselves to those we love better. It's different for everyone, but often we take this time at the beginning of each new year to reflect on the year past and to look ahead to the coming year and, and resolve to make adjustments to our lives, you know, to improve ourselves or our position or our relationships. And for many, we make resolutions to do more for God in the new year because we want to serve Him more or we want to explore new areas of ministry that we haven't before or we want to give more than we ever have. And generally speaking, I think that anything that causes us to reevaluate uh, our lives and look for areas where we can improve physically, emotionally, spiritually is good. Uh, I think it's healthy for us to reassess ourselves from time to time and resolve to make positive changes. And so if changing from one year to the next on the calendar is an impetus for us to do that, then so be it. Of course, assessing or reassessing our lives it should probably be more than an annual exercise. And the resolutions that we make, if, if they're truly what God wills for us, should be continually affirmed throughout the year. But the new year is as good a place to start as any. So today we're going to talk about what it means to be resolved, particularly in the context of serving God. And so we'll be continuing to work our way through uh, the book of Acts this morning in our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, with a message entitled Resolved. And we're going to be looking at the first 24 verses of chapter 20 today. And of course, uh, we'll stop along the way for some teaching points as always. And as we do that, we'll also talk about the Apostle Paul's own resolve to answer the call of God in his life and see what we can glean from that for our own lives today. All right. So to set the stage for this portion of our story... In the spring of A.D. 52, Paul embarks on his third missionary journey, which we saw back in chapter 18, verse 23, where he's sent out again by the church at Pisidian Antioch. And ultimately, he visits many of the same cities that he did in his second journey. And so as we read these first few verses, we'll take a look at, at where Paul is traveling also as he leaves Ephesus. Okay, so let's read it together. Acts chapter 20, and we'll start right on verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. Okay, so initially Paul was sent out from Pisidian Antioch through Galatia and Phrygia and ended up in Ephesus where he spent three years. We have our map here. So here's Antioch, Syrian Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch, excuse me where he was sent out from, and he, he comes through Galatia and Phrygia, and he, he's over here in Ephesus. And that's where we've been the last couple of weeks. Paul's been here uh, in Ephesus. Uh, and now he leaves Ephesus, and he heads north for Macedonia, and he goes through Troas, and then most likely back through Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, uh, visiting all of those Christian communities on his way to Corinth, where he winters over for three months, which is alluded to in verse 3. So he's here... Um, in Ephesus, and he goes north through his Troas, so he goes up through here, and then over into Greece, Philippi, Berea, Athens, and then into Corinth, where he spends the winter time. All right, let's finish verse 3, and then we'll keep reading. 
And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, excuse me, Aristarchus and Secondus and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So just as Paul's about to sail to Syria, he finds out about this plot against him, which has now become commonplace uh, for Paul. And so he travels back up through Macedonia, and he spends seven days in Troas. So he's down here in Corinth, and he essentially backtracks back up through Greece, and comes back down to Troas, where he, he spends seven days there. Okay, And then verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together uh, to break bread. And just want to pause there for a note. Uh, the first day of the week mentioned in verse 7 is the first reference in Acts to worship on a Sunday rather than, rather than the Jewish Sabbath that was celebrated on Saturdays. The church came together on Sundays to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, And from the beginning, Sunday was known as the Lord's Day and the first day of the week. So this is why the church under the new covenant uh, continues to meet on Sundays today. Although there are, of course, some traditions in the Protestant church that still worship on Saturdays. But the truth is, which day of the week we actually meet on is far less important than the fact that we do continue to meet every week as the church did in Acts. Uh, there was generally, as I mentioned earlier, a fellowship meal each week when they met on Sundays, which was recognized as the Lord's Supper, which is why uh, we tried to have the meal together as often as we could after services. And, uh, and of course, again, I've run out of space, but that's something that we would reinstitute uh, immediately if we had the, the room to do so, because it is right for us to gather in fellowship over a meal and to celebrate the Lord's Supper as well on a weekly basis, if possible. Furthermore, there was no immediate break between the Christian community and the Jewish community until A.D. 70. Okay, as the church was developing, it wasn't uncommon, as we've seen with Paul throughout the book of Acts, for Christians to continue to recognize the Jewish customs and ceremonial laws, including observing the Jewish Sabbath on Saturdays, in addition to meeting and worshiping on Sunday. So they were together a lot more than we are. That all changed in A.D. 70 when the judgment of God fell on Israel. Uh, the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem and, of course, destroyed the temple, at which point the Jews fled Jerusalem and dispersed to nations all over the world. And from that point on, the Christian community had a very clearly separate identity from the Jewish religion. All right, That was the point of demarcation between Judaism and Christianity from a religious cultural standpoint. And as you look at Nero and the others throughout the ages who have persecuted the church, that just continued to be the case. So let's finish verse 7 then and we'll keep, keep reading. Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. First of all, the first part of this story makes me feel a lot better about myself when my sermons run about 15 minutes past. 
because Paul preached all night and then took a little break and keeps preaching until morning. So nobody gets to complain if I delay your lunch plans by a few minutes, all right? The second lesson that we learn from this part of the story is never fall asleep during the sermon. <laughs> because you never know, teenagers, you'll, you'll fall off the pew and hit your head and you're done for. You never know what's going to happen. But in all seriousness, in Paul's day, Sunday was an ordinary work day. And so the church would typically meet either very early in the morning or late at night after work or both often. And so these people were coming to hear Paul teach at night. They were coming in from working all day. Probably some of them were very tired. You combine that with what verse 8 describes as the many oil lamps in the room. You have all of these fumes rising up toward the ceiling where this young man named Eutychus was sitting. And they would sit near the open windows so that they could get fresh air in these cramped uh, locations where the church would meet. And so he's sitting up there in this window to get fresh air while Paul preaches. And so most likely, if you can imagine this guy working all day, he's worn out. He's up near the ceiling where all the fumes are gathering, listening to Paul go on and on and on for hours. And he's overcome by a mixture probably of exhaustion and a buildup of oil fumes in his lungs. And he falls out of the window, falls asleep and out of the window. And verse 9 says, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, there are historians and scholars who have tried to make the case over the years that this young man wasn't actually dead, maybe just knocked unconscious. And so they've tried to assert that verse 9 is implying that he was taken up as dead, or it's as if he were dead. But there are a couple problems with that theory as I see it. First of all, that's not what the actual verse says. When you read verse 9 in the original Greek, it says that Eutychus was picked up dead. And the word dead there in the Greek is the word nekros, which literally means deceased. And some historians have said, well, the author may have been exaggerating. But remember, the book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. Uh, right? Uh, Dr. Luke didn't say it's as if Eutychus was dead. He says Eutychus was deceased. And Luke was there. He may well have examined the young man after he hit the ground, which would explain why he was able to confidently say that Eutychus was dead. And furthermore, there isn't much likelihood that a doctor would look at someone who was simply unconscious and declare him dead anyway. Right? So we can with relative certainty, although we don't know 100%, except that this young man probably actually died and God through Paul raises him from the dead. And, and I, I can't move on from this part of the story without mentioning the fact that the entomology of the name Eutychus, the literal meaning of the name Eutychus is lucky. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that luck brought him back to life, but, but maybe he was lucky that Paul happened to be there. His name means lucky, which is really another example of how meaningful names are shown to be in the Bible, which we mentioned during the baby dedication earlier this morning. So uh, make sure, all of you mothers-to-be, uh, that you pick a really good name for your kids because it is biblically proven that people, especially those who honor God with their lives, tend to live up to their given names. In fact, I wish now I had named at least one of my kids Millionaire. <laughs> But that was before I was a preacher and I didn't know any better. So, all right, so back to the story. Now, Lucky is raised from the dead and they all have a meal together and Paul renews his strength. He keeps preaching and teaching until daybreak. Okay, so let's pick it back up at verse 13. <clears throat> but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Ossus, intending to take Paul aboard there. 
for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came uh, the following day opposite Caius. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So they get on a boat at Ossus and sail to Mytilene and then uh, on to Caius, which, by the way, is the birthplace of Homer. Uh, and then they sail past Ephesus to Samos, which is the birthplace of the famous mathematician Pythagoras, who is credited for discovering the Pythagorean theorem for all of you geometry lovers. And then Paul's group sails on to Miletus. So uh, looking at the map, they're up here at Troas. Come down here to Ossus, and then they're hitting these Greek islands. There's Mytilene, Caius, Samus. They go past Ephesus down here to Miletus, and that's where he is uh, now. And most likely, because Paul spent three years in Ephesus, he knew if he stopped there, uh, he would have been held up for too long saying all of his goodbyes to all of the people at the churches where he developed relationships with there. And he wanted to make it to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, which underscores again the importance for Paul in keeping the Jewish customs. Okay, so up to this point, and, and really throughout Paul's travels, we see his resolve to keep pressing forward with the mission that God has given him, even when it could have, he could have very easily stayed in any one of these cities, surrounded by believers who loved and cared for him. But Paul knew what God had for him to do would mean forfeiting his comfort and security in favor of the great unknown. It would mean great risk to himself. And as we keep reading, that becomes quite clear. Uh, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul was resolved to risk it all. And this is one of the great lessons that we stand to learn as we examine Paul's life and ministry. Being resolved means accepting risk. We're all called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to answer that call, there cannot be success without risk. Okay, I'm personally convinced that although there can be risk without Success. There cannot be success without risk. You follow me? We can take risks in this life and not be successful in whatever it is we're attempting to achieve. Not all risk results in success. Paul attempted to convince many people to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ at tremendous risk to himself. And he wasn't always successful in that. Not by a long shot. I've taken risks in my life and failed. Right, But at the same time, any major success that you do achieve in life will always involve some degree of risk. Uh, Paul would have never been able to accomplish all that he did 
leading thousands to Christ, planting churches all over that part of the world, writing most of the New Testament. Paul wouldn't have been able to achieve any of that if he hadn't been willing to risk everything. Every great achievement that I've ever experienced personally in my own life involved significant risk. But because of the unknown that is inherent with taking risks in life, we often view risk negatively. We like being able to predict the outcome of our decisions, our choices. We, we don't want to step into great unknowns in our lives because that would mean having to completely trust in God for the outcome. But we tend to trust ourselves sometimes more than we trust God. I've trusted myself many times more than I trusted God in my own life. And so we play it safe. We distance ourselves from risk as much as possible. And yet every single person in the Bible, and I would add throughout history, who has ever achieved anything truly great for the cause of Christ has done so at great risk to some aspect of his or her own life. Whether the risk is in relationships or livelihood, popularity or safety, in personal advancement, in security and in income, whatever it is, wherever we see great success, you will always find that great risk preceded it. For those who wish to achieve something great for Jesus Christ. Risk is not negative. It is necessary. If you want to achieve something great for Christ in your life, you have to view risk not as negative, but as necessary. John Piper once wrote, If our single, all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, and if the life that magnifies Him most is the life of costly love, then life is risk. And risk is right. To run from it is to waste your life. One of the greatest achievements for me and my family so far in this life has been starting this church. Which I hope and pray, by the way, lives on long after we're all gone. But, but getting here just to this point has involved a tremendous amount of risk. Uh, over what has now been a six-year journey. We sold most everything that we owned in 2009, and we moved to Alaska into a great unknown. And most of you have heard the story, so I won't tell it again, but there was no little risk involved there. And it wasn't all successful, by the way. We've paid a very high price financially for the decision to be obedient to the call of God on our lives. We gave up any financial security that we had. We gave up a lot of income and a promising future in business and personal belongings and some relationships to try and achieve something great for God. And there has been success and there has been failure. So please understand, I'm not trying to sell you some kind of bravado here. And some of the risks that I've taken in my own life, I've succeeded in what I was trying to achieve and have great regrets for some of those decisions because the achievement was based on my mission for my life, not God's plan for my life, which we'll talk about more in a moment. And at the same time, I've also taken risks where I was trying to honor God and failed. And yet I learned so much from those experiences that I don't regret those decisions at all. Okay, when we, when we step out into an unknown, the risk is entrusting God to determine the outcome instead of ourselves. Paul continually risked everything for the sake of doing what the Holy Spirit was telling him to do. And yet Paul wasn't always successful. 
conservatively, thousands of people that Paul tried to lead to Christ rejected the message and rejected Paul and rejected Christ. Paul, doing exactly what he was called to do, was not always successful. Sometimes he failed to achieve what he was trying to achieve. There's a difference between feelings and obedience. And I won't get into that much today other than to say, you know, when Jesus Christ was in the garden before his death, he didn't want to die. He said, Father, take this cup from me. Nonetheless, your will be done, not mine. You see, our feelings should never determine our direction. They should confirm that. But obedience to God and His Word and His voice in our life is what determines our direction. Even we see that with Jesus Christ. Obedient to go against exactly opposite what He felt He wanted to do. To be obedient to God's plan. That, that's why it's called risk. And again, that's why we don't like it. Because we don't want to hazard the possibility of ever failing. But to never make an attempt. To never risk anything for Christ is a much greater failure, in my opinion, than to have tried and not succeeded. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great theologian and author who gave his life trying to save the church in Germany from the Nazis during World War II, wrote these words in a letter to the Ecumenical World Alliance. Uh, ecumenical means the church worldwide, right? all the Christians around the world. So he wrote this to this World Alliance of Churches when pleading with them for help in his fight against the Third Reich. This is what he wrote. A decision must be made at some point. And it's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble. Even the ecumenical movement has to make up its mind and is therefore subject to error like everything human. But to procrastinate and prevaricate, it means to be evasive, simply because you're afraid of erring when others, I mean our brethren in Germany, must make infinitely more difficult decisions every day, seems to me almost to run counter to love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. Okay? Risk is not negative. It is necessary. If your desire is to be resolved to achieve something more for Christ this year, if you truly want to do something great for God in your life, you're going to have to stare risk in the face and accept the challenge. Otherwise, as sure as we're all sitting here today, you'll be here next year carrying that same unfulfilled longing around in your heart. I guarantee it. Risk is not negative. It is necessary. Being resolved means accepting risk. And the Apostle Paul was well aware of that. He, he was willing to step into the great unknown. Verse 22, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. This is a great unknown for Paul, but he says he's constrained by the Spirit. That word in the Greek is deo, which means to be bound. Okay, Paul says, I'm bound by the Spirit. I'm compelled. I'm resolved to walk into this great unknown. And yet the one thing that he does know, unequivocally, is that it isn't going to be easy. Because he says, I don't know what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Verse 23. Paul is literally risking his safety, his health, his security, his very life by going to Jerusalem. And yet he's resolved to do so. Why? 
Why is he so resolved to press on, to carry on, to push ahead? He tells us why. In verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, Paul understood that what God had planned for his life was so much bigger than just him. Paul knew that what God wanted to accomplish through him was something that would change the world. Being resolved is understanding that the mission is bigger than yourself. As Christians, we live for something bigger than ourselves. And Paul certainly understood that. Again, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It, it wasn't that Paul didn't care about himself. Or what happened to him. He, he, in fact, cared very much about that. We already saw back in Corinth in chapter 18 when the Holy Spirit said, Hey, pal, you need to stop being afraid. There were times when Paul feared for his own life, for his future. It wasn't that he didn't care about himself. He simply understood that the mission was so much bigger than himself. Paul was living for something bigger, something transcendent of this temporary life on earth. He definitely cared about his own life, but he cared more about the mission. And ultimately, he gave his life to accomplish that mission. Which sounds like a lot like someone else we read about in the Bible, doesn't it? Jesus Christ, who gave up his own life for the mission before him. And he commanded each one of us, by the way, to do the same thing. We're all called to live for something greater than ourselves and to give up our will for his and for some, that will mean paying the ultimate price, giving up their lives physically for the sake of the gospel. We're seeing that playing out today in other parts of the world every day. And of course, not every one of us has to physically die for the gospel. I'm thankful for that. However, we are all commanded by Jesus himself to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. Matthew 16, 24, which means that every single follower of Christ is commanded to live our lives according to his will, not our own, no matter the cost to ourselves. And he commanded us to make disciples. That is his will for each one of us. And we're to pursue that mission, no matter the cost. Some of the basic elements of that kind of life, like being committed to a local body, a local church, tithing, giving faithfully, serving the body, serving one another, those things are the least of it. They're part of the mission, but that's just the beginning. That's the first few steps. We should never have to worry about whether or not people are going to show up on Sundays in any church, or whether or not we'll have enough money to come in to fund the ministry that's going out of this church, or whether or not there will be enough people to serve in all the areas of ministry happening each week, because that's the least of what we're called to do. As a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, living for something far greater than our own desires and our own plans, we should be coming together every week to celebrate and worship God for everything that He's been doing through us in between the Sundays. What happens on Sundays should be a given for every follower of Jesus Christ. That's the day that we gather to fellowship and worship and celebrate, to learn and be discipled in the Word so that we can be strengthened and encouraged to continue living out the mission before us, which happens, of course, not just on Sundays, but every day. 
And so if the totality of your Christian experience is summed up by what happens on Sunday mornings at church, you're missing the bigger picture. Can I say that to you with all of the love that I have in me? If the totality of your Christian experience is summed up by what happens on Sunday mornings here at the church, you're missing the bigger picture. There is a mission that is bigger than all of us. It's bigger than Sundays. It's bigger than number two, Church Street. And it will require you to lay down your own life for the sake of it. In fact, Jesus said there is no other way to follow him than to give up all that you have. We, we cannot simply add a Sunday routine to an otherwise self-serving life and expect to accomplish anything significant for Jesus Christ. won't happen. And so every opportunity that comes your way to serve the gospel of Christ, especially those that threaten to interrupt your way of life, that pose great risk to your comfort and your security and your stability. Those opportunities that would mean great sacrifice on your part, those should be given the greatest consideration. Because the mission is bigger than all of us. And it is only by way of great risk that we can ever accomplish anything of great value for the sake of Jesus Christ. Uh, my wife and I and my two boys have committed to sponsoring uh, more of those testimony books for the next two years that I'm convinced we can afford. And some may think that's being irresponsible because it doesn't fit comfortably into our budget. Except that every single book that gets mailed out is sending the gospel directly into people's homes. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Matthew 13, 44. The mission of the gospel is more important than my personal budget. And I've watched so many of you do things for each other, not just out of your abundance, but out of your need. And some on the outside looking in might say, that's too much. You have to care for your own first. And Jesus said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. The mission of the gospel is more urgent than our personal comfort. And there are numerous families and individuals, a surprising percentage actually, in this church that I know of firsthand, and probably more that I'm not yet aware of, who have given up literally position and prominence and security and savings and homes and businesses to pursue the call of God in their lives. And to many, that seems foolish to throw away such a promising future, to give up retirement funds and predictable outcomes for the great unknown of following Jesus Christ and trusting Him for the outcome. And yet the Apostle Paul, who had all the prominence and power and respect and secure future that anyone could ever want, said, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. The gospel, the mission of the gospel holds far more promise than our personal security. Rather than allow what is socially and philosophically acceptable to our culture to determine our behavior, our actions as we enter this new year, let's resolve 
to live for something bigger than ourselves. Let's live for Christ like never before and accept the challenge of the mission that is before us. And without question, there will be risk involved. There will be. What, but what if we all took the risk to give more? To give more here each week in this church? What if we all committed to a greater portion of giving here in this church and outside of here? What if we all took the risk to do more this year, to do more in these ministries here at the church, to be more involved, but also outside of here in our neighborhoods? What if we, we all took the risk this year to love more, to love each other more, to love more in our marriages, to sacrifice ourselves for our spouse, for our children, for our families here in this church with this family and outside of here in the places where we live and work? What if we all took a greater risk this year to live for something bigger than ourselves, more than we ever have before? What would your life look like then? What would we as a church be able to accomplish then? I can promise you this. If you do that, it will not only have an effect on those all around you, it will forever change how you see yourself and it will change how you live your life. And the fulfillment that you will experience from that is the greatest thing that you could ever do for yourself. And it, it all comes by living for someone else. That's my resolve for this year. Are you with me? Amen. Let's pray.